If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 John, and we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. And uh, many of you have asked me if we've got the little 1 John journals. Um, we do. They're not here yet, um, but they will be here by next week for you guys to follow along, take notes in, and journal in. Um, so 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And the title of this sermon is A Proclamation of Joy. This is our first of 15 sermons on the letters of John. Uh, We'll be in 1 John from now until Easter, um, and then we'll hit 2 John and 3 John in the weeks following Easter. And I'm excited to be back in a book again, uh, and specifically this book. Um, And here's why. I think that this book is extremely relevant for us today. Uh, I believe that every book of the Bible is relevant to us. And alongside that, we've got to also remember that the many different letters of the New Testament are occasional. In other words, they're written for different occasions happening in different churches or time periods. Again, hear this loud and clear. Every letter of every word of Scripture is relevant to us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's true. And the letters of the New Testament were written into specific occasions. They weren't written into a vacuum. So, with that in mind... What was the specific occasion for the letter of 1 John? Great question. You guys ask such great questions. And in asking that question, you're doing what is called hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation. What was the specific occasion for the letter of 1 John? All right. First, who was the author? While there's some debate here on which John we're talking about, the majority view which I hold is that this letter is written by the Apostle John, the disciple who Jesus loved, the author of the Gospel of John and of Revelation. If you read the Gospel of John and then 1 John next to it, the language and the themes are incredibly similar. Plus, The statements he makes, even in the first four verses that we're going to look at today, seem to be coming from someone who had a front row seat to Jesus' life and ministry. And they seem to be coming from someone who's speaking authoritatively as a capital A apostle. So, the apostle John is in Ephesus, and he's writing to a church or churches in Asia Minor in the late first century. Okay. So, what do we know was going on at that place and at that time? What was the occasion? Well, we know that there were several false teachers teaching against the Incarnation, which we've been preaching on the last several weeks. They were what are called Gnostics, coming from the Greek word gnosis, or knowledge. And one scholar comments that Gnosticism was a combination of pagan mysticism and Greek philosophy, 
predicated on two primary principles. First, Gnosticism taught that the way of salvation was through secret superior knowledge granted to the initiated. Second, Gnostics considered all matter to be evil, but spirit to be good. Follow me here. This, this is important for understanding 1 John. Gnosticism, salvation through secret superior knowledge for a small and hidden group. Matter is bad, spirit is good. In other words, your physical body is evil, but your soul is good. Now, why is that a problem for Orthodox Christology? Because Jesus took on flesh. He became fully human. If flesh is evil, we have a tainted Christ. So, what did these Gnostics do? At least one crew of them were called the Docetist. Another fun word. Dakeo is the Greek word for seemed. They believed and taught that while Jesus was fully divine spirit, because remember, to them, spirit is good, while Jesus was a fully divine spirit, they taught that he only seemed to be human, but wasn't in reality. They denied the real humanity of Jesus in the incarnation. Nuts and bolts here. They, they taught that when people saw Jesus on earth, they viewed something like a ghost. If you were to walk over and try to touch him, there'd be no physical body to touch. That's the docetist. Jesus only seems to be human. The second crew of people that came out of Gnosticism was a group called the Serinthians. And this doesn't come from a Greek word. It comes from a guy named Serinthius, who, unlike the docetist, he taught that Jesus really was fully human, but he was only that until his baptism when the Holy Spirit came down, making him the Christ for three years. Then the Holy Spirit left him as he's going to the cross because they believed that God couldn't really suffer like that. Both of these streams of Gnosticism taught major heresies related to the incarnation and certainly substitutionary atonement. And it's into this occasion that John writes this letter. These false teachers have come into the church, just like Paul said they would in Acts 20. And there's those in the church who are confused. Remember, this is the early church. They don't have systematic theology books, or blogs, or, or sermons, or podcasts that they can go see. Is this guy's teaching really true? Is it legit? But what they did have? is even better. They had these letters, which would eventually be affirmed as scripture. Letters written by the apostles who walked, talked, ate with, and cried with Jesus himself. Remember what John said, or what Jesus said to the, the, the apostles. John 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says this. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. While I love theology books, I love podcasts, this is so much better. Apostolic letters from these guys who were given the Holy Spirit to help them remember everything that Jesus said. So that's what 1 John is that we have today in our presence. A letter from the Apostle John written to the church for this occasion. And before we move any further, I want to read this quote from Ligon Duncan regarding 1 John and its occasion. He invites us to to picture this setting. Picture a, a world where people don't believe in absolute truth. Where even Christians are relativist. Where theologians are uncertain about Jesus. Where new spiritualities are proliferating. Where the idea that there is only one way of salvation is considered outmoded, backwards, narrow, ignorant. What world are we describing? Today, of course, right? True. But I really had in mind John's day. You may be asking yourself, can the gospel work in that kind of environment where no one believes or few believe in absolute truth? Where Christians are relativists, where even Christian theologians are uncertain about Jesus, where new spiritualities are proliferating, where the idea of one way of salvation is viewed as outmoded, can the Christian proclamation work in that kind of environment, he asked. I want us to see that John's answer, then and now, is a resounding yes. The proclamation of the gospel is still as powerful as ever. 1 John is a relevant book for you and me today. Now, with all of that in mind, a couple of other very quick context things before we dive into the text. First, while this is a letter, it doesn't read like one. It doesn't read like one of Paul's letters anyway which are very linear. Um, Proposition A, because B, because C, therefore D. That's how Paul writes. John's letter here is more like a poem or or a song. He, He uses a method called amplification, where he has three main points that he'll circle around and back into and out of over and over and over again. Almost like the chorus of a song, except for there's three of them. What are those three? Number one, right doctrine. Right doctrine. Or more specifically, right belief about the Jesus of the Bible. So right doctrine. Two, obedience. Obeying God's commands. So right doctrine and obedience. Three, love. Do you love the church? And by the church, I don't mean the structure or the system. I mean the people, God's people. Do you love the church? So right doctrine, obedience, and love. What does it mean to be a Christian? How can I know if I'm a Christian? That's the primary question this early church was struggling with. And that John is answering, how can I know if I'm a Christian? 
Do you believe in the Jesus of the Bible? The root. Do I obey God's commands? The fruit. Do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ? More fruit. And here's the deal. John's letter is meant to do two things. Number one, if you're not a Christian, he wants to define it for you. Don't decide for or against Christianity based on what you see in movies or in the news. This is biblical Christianity in its most basic form. That's what John's doing. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, it's this. Second, if you are a Christian, John isn't here to cause you to doubt your salvation. It's actually the opposite. He wants you to know that you are a Christian by observing these three truths. It's about assurance. Do I believe in the Jesus of the Bible? That's the core. Then, do I see these fruits? Obeying God's commands, loving God's people. All right. So with all of that, let's dive into the text. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Okay, so to give us some structure to walk through these four verses, I want us to step into what I'm going to call Christological Court. Christological Court. And to do that, we're going to become investigators this morning. Examining evidence, being investigators. Does that sound good? So let's ask the basic investigative questions. Who, what, and why? Who, what, and why? Those are our three points of today's text. Number one, who? Who are we even talking about here? And John just launches right in, doesn't he? There's no opening to the letter. There's no, uh, I, John, apostle to the church. No, he's right in there. Who are we talking about? The first answer is at the end of verse 1. Look there with me. The word of life. The word of life. The life that was made manifest or revealed the eternal life that was with the Father. We're talking about the Son of God, the Word made flesh. This is the same way that John talks about Jesus in his gospel. Look with me at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 14, John goes on to write, And the word, there's that word again, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later on in John's Gospel, John 14, 6, Jesus says this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the Word. He's the life. He is life. He gives life. He creates and sustains life. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Paul says, He, meaning Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Look at how the author of Hebrews talks about Him. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What all of these texts are saying is that everything you see around you was made by God through his Son, who spoke creation into existence, the Word. He's the Word of life. That's who we're talking about. He was from the beginning. John, in so many different ways here, is telling us that Jesus is fully divine. He's fully divine. Now, do you understand that this is offensive to the world around us? Our secular age is comfortable with a Jesus who was just a good person, or or a guru of some sort, or a Jesus that's just a good example for humanity. But to say he's divine, and that he created everything, including you and me and them, that's offensive. Because if that's true, he can make claims on you. He has the authority to command you as Lord of the universe. That's the who that we proclaim. But it's more than that. I've been using the word who, but that's not the word that John uses, is it? Look at the text again. He says, that which, that which, that which, over and over and over again. And the gender of the Greek word each time is neuter, not masculine. Why? And why is this important? Well, here it is. John certainly is talking about a who, who can be seen and heard and touched. And he's talking about a message, the message of Jesus. 
He's talking about both the person and the message of Jesus. And just like the person of Jesus, his message is from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. Why is that important? I want us to remember the occasion of this letter. You've got these false teachers showing up and they're teaching something new. John's saying, nope, the message of the gospel is rooted in eternity. There's a stability to it. It's from the beginning along with the person of Jesus. It doesn't change. How important is that for us to hear today? We have people all around us, unfortunately, even in the church, trying to invent new doctrine, reinventing church, new morality, new Jesus. That which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. We believe in sola scriptura. Scripture is our final authority for faith and life. And under that, historical theology is really, really helpful. What's historical theology? Historical theology is the discipline of studying how Christians throughout history have interpreted doctrine. If you look throughout Christian history, and the same doctrine has been believed for centuries, and then all of a sudden, there's this new interpretation in the last 50 years, that's a red flag. The old saying goes, if it's new, it ain't true. That which was from the beginning, Jesus, the fully divine word of life and his message. That's what John's bringing to the stand in our Christological courtroom. So that's the who. Now point two. What? What? Now that Jesus is on the stand, what's being said about him? Look at what John says about Jesus. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. In the scientific age today, where everything needs to be verified, heard, seen, looked upon, and touched, the apostles did it. Again, I want us, want us to put ourselves in the courtroom setting. The Gnostic prosecution has just claimed that, that Jesus is fully divine, but not human. But the apostles are then called up to the stand, be cross-examined, asked a series of questions. Now, apostles, did, did any of you hear him? Yes. Yes, we did. We sat on the edge of our seats all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. We, we heard him teach the parables about the kingdom. We, we heard him teach against the Pharisees and self-righteousness. And we heard him claim to be God. All right, all right. You heard him. But, but did any of you see him? Yes, yes, we did. 
One of them says, I saw him heal a blind man and cast out demons. Another, I saw him walk on water. Another, I saw him turn water into wine. Another, I saw him have compassion on so, so many people. Feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. I saw it. And then John himself chimes in. He says, let me tell you what I saw. Seeing was part of my conversion. John chapter 20, verses 3 through 8. So Peter went out with the other disciple, meaning John. And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus, Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Verse 8. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. He saw and believed. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I saw the empty tomb, John said. These men were eyewitnesses to everything Jesus did. Now, 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's all of us. None of us have seen him. But the apostles did. That which we have seen with our eyes. Okay, okay, okay. You heard and you saw. But that can be unreliable, right? You could be hallucinating. But did any of you touch him? Andrew says, he washed my feet. James, me too. And on and on down the line. Peter chimes in. He grabbed my hand and pulled me into the boat when I took my eyes off him. Started sinking in the water. Jesus grabbed my hand. John says, I laid my head on his chest at the Last Supper. Then, Thomas, doubting Thomas, with a sheepish grin on his face, stands up. Ladies and gentlemen, they all touched Jesus' resurrected body. And I did too. John 20, verses 24 through 29 now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. This is after the resurrection. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. No farther questions, Your Honor. This is the what that the we, the apostles, are proclaiming. Proclaiming, which is the main verb in this text, by the way. They're proclaiming that they were there. They heard, they saw, they looked upon, they touched. They're reliable witnesses that not only was Jesus divine, but he was also fully human. This is the first right doctrine that John brings to the table for us. How can I know if I'm a Christian? Do you believe in the incarnation of Christ? The divine word made flesh, human. That's what the apostles proclaimed. Okay, the who and the what. Now on to our third and final courtroom question. Point three, why? Why? What is the motive for the apostles proclaiming what they heard, saw, looked upon, and touched? Why would they proclaim these truths? Well, in that regard, this text is abundantly clear. John gives us two statements that answer that question. Look at the text again closely. In verses 3 and 4, John uses two clauses that are called henna clauses, which in Greek typically display purpose. Henna is translated so that. And John gives us two purposes or motives for why the apostles proclaimed these truths. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Do you see that? They proclaimed the truth of Christ so that others might have fellowship with them. He's saying, we're preaching this to you, whether you're in the church and need assurance or whether you're on the outside looking in. We're, we're preaching this to you because we want you to have fellowship with us. We want you to join us. We want you to be part of the family. Now, this word fellowship is critical. It's the word koinonia. And unfortunately, when we think of fellowship, we tend to think of coffee and calories. <laughs> Getting together, eating or drinking with each other. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But that alone isn't fellowship. Fellowship throughout the Bible carries with it the meaning of participation, association, partnership, sharing, even communion. We're talking about shared life. Shared life. But notice the pronoun here. So that you may have fellowship with us. The us here is the apostles. And here's my point. To have fellowship with the apostles 
is to believe what the apostles taught about Jesus. There can be no true fellowship where there's no shared belief about Christ. And I know that doesn't sit well with our all-inclusive modern sensibilities. I'm not saying that we can't care for and show hospitality to and welcome and minister to unbelievers. We should do all of those things and do them well. But there's no true communion without believing in the same Christ. John is saying, we're proclaiming these truths to you so that you might embrace them and have true communion or true fellowship with us. But it's even bigger and more important than this horizontal fellowship. I mean, let's be honest. Maybe you're on the outside looking in and you're thinking, I I know Christians. I know churches. Fellowship with you isn't a great motivation. You people are nice and all, but I can go fellowship with my surf club or with my mountain biking group or my wine club. And that's why John says what he says next. While the the horizontal fellowship with a bunch of sinners linking arms and trying to follow Jesus is good, that's not even the half of it. Look at what John says. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You may be able to find more hip, more adventurous, maybe even nicer people in a club or a group somewhere else. But there's nowhere else in the world that has fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The local church. Understand this. To be part of the church, the people of God, to have fellowship isn't always an easy thing. I jokingly but seriously say in every membership class that we do, if you've been through it, you've heard this. If you're signing up to be a member here, you're signing up to be sinned against. You're signing up with a bunch of sinners, the pastor himself included. But, but, you're also signing up to be forgiven and to forgive, to be shown grace and mercy and love because our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We receive grace and mercy and love from Christ and we give it to one another. Do you see what we've been given in the local church? I invite you to ponder that when you wake up and get ready to come to church on a Sunday morning. It's not, well, what's the pastor going to say today? I hope they don't do that one song again. No. It's, I get to go and have fellowship with the Father and the Son and with God's people. The church is the only place on earth where that's happening. So that's one reason why John proclaims. But there's another. Look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that, there's that word again, so that our joy may be complete. He proclaims so that they might have fellowship 
but also so that our joy may be complete. You might be saying, Drew, I think you read that wrong. Shouldn't it be so that, that your joy may be complete? We proclaim so that your joy might be complete? And some manuscripts actually have that, but I think they're wrong. John says, we, the apostles, write these things to you, the church, so that our, the apostles' joy may be complete. How does that work? Well, if you're a Christian, and you've, you've ever shared the gospel, and had a friend or a loved one come to know Christ, you know exactly how this works. When, when you share the gospel with someone and they put their trust in Christ, it's one of the most joyous moments ever for you. If you're a parent and your child decides to follow Jesus and obey his commands, you're elated. Your joy is off the charts. Yes, they are joyful and experiencing the joy of Christ. But you are too. We don't share the good news of Jesus and invite people into fellowship just to have big numbers, to grow our own ego. We share the good news because it's our joy. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In the presence of God, there's enough joy to go around. Friends, that's why we proclaim. We want you to have fellowship with us and with the Father and His Son. We want fullness of joy for you and for us. Nothing would give us more joy than for you to put your faith in Christ. We would rejoice in this. If you're not a Christian, we proclaim to you these truths. Jesus, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, came to this earth. He lived a perfect life, died a brutal death on a cross in our place as our substitute pay the penalty that each and every one of us deserve. He was buried and rose from the grave three days later, defeating sin, Satan, and death forever. If you turn from sin and put your faith in that Christ, you will be saved. Join our fellowship. Experience our joy. And if you are a Christian, I hope that this is an encouragement to you to go and proclaim the gospel. Complete your joy. Share it with as many people as you can. 1 John is a relevant book for us today. Believe right doctrine about Jesus Christ. Obey his commands and love his people. Let's pray.